Okay, so we're in 1 John 2, 3 through 6. And um, the title of this little little bit of series within 1 John is Hereby We Know. And um, if you remember last week or the week before last, we were looking at um, the gospel record of Matthew, or Mark it was. And um, just by the example of Jesus Christ and how he interacted with his disciples, uh, we can learn how we can fellowship with God. We can learn how we can come to know God and, um, and how these men come to know God. And it's by obedience. It's by being with Christ. And how are we with Christ? We're with Christ in his word. How do we obey Christ? We obey Christ with what it was, what is found in his word. And I mentioned that there were three things that was important for us that we need to know. And the first thing that we need to know, this knowing God, this being associated with God, begins with our salvation. If you're not saved, you're not going to know God. It's as simple as that. I don't care what kind of religion you uh, you uh, have. I don't care you know, how involved you are in a church. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, He's your personal Lord and Savior, you're not going to come to know God. Because we come to know God through salvation. And it's also, if you remember, I told you it was important in regards to our salvation. It was dependent on upon, upon what you know of Christ. Because there's a lot of different opinions about Jesus Christ. And remember, if I, I, I referred to Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 29, when, when Jesus asked, you know, what do men, who, do, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're a prophet, some say you're this. And then he asked them, he says, well, what, whom do you say that I am? And then Peter said, he says, thou art the Christ. So it is important that we understand what it is that we know about Jesus in order to be saved. And the issue of salvation is first and foremost, of course. And uh, the second thing about our knowing God, in spite uh, other than salvation, other than knowing Jesus Christ, is our sanctification. Is our sanctification. Uh, this is being in fellowship with God. This is being obedient to God. This is walking in the Spirit. Uh, this is just being with God. And that's what we covered for the most part when we went through 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, and we went through all of that study. And so uh, what is sanctification? Sanctification is simply separating our lives unto the Lord away from this world system. Away from this world system. And when we get into 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, I'm going to dive a little deeper into what is exactly is this world system uh, that we're not to fall in love with. Because we do have a world system out there trying to woo us to love it. And we're told not to do that. So I'm going to get in a little deeper with that when we get there. So our relationship with God begins with salvation. And our relationship with God is enhanced through our sanctification as we get closer to God and further away from this world and and all of its tantalizing things that it wants to tantalize us with. So what we're going to look at is the third thing. And so that's where we're going to start on our study guide. And so 1 John 2, 4 says, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, 
And the truth is not in him, but whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know, hereby know we that we are in him. So your very first blank is the word revelation. Revelation. And I think I have Matthew 16 on your study guide. So on Matthew 16, we have something very similar to what we looked at in Mark chapter 8. It says, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that is so essential for us to understand. Then he goes on, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And that is a definition of what revelation is. Revelation is that which God himself reveals to man that man did not know. In other words, revelation from God is something that man cannot figure out on his own. It's not something that I can sit here with my own, with my limited intelligence and come to understand or, or, or come to, to know. Only God can reveal these things. And God has revealed these things through His written word. And that's very important for us to believe and to understand. So on your study guide, here we see the same series of questions that were presented by that were presented by our Lord in Mark's account, but here we have an addition. Added to association, we now have revelation. We now have revelation. Hebrews 1 1 says, God who at sundry times and in a diverse manner spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. So truth is revelation given to man by God. Alright? And this revelation uh, came to holy men of God. And this revelation was written down for man to know the mind of God, which is truth. So this is something that comes from God. This is something that man cannot figure out on his own. 2 Peter 1.20 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any, of any private interpretation. In other words, men did not make this up. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So the, so the Scriptures are inspired by God. The Holy Ghost moved these men to write down what we have in Scripture. So on your study guide, another threat presented by the seducers besides worship without truth is their claim to having some new revelation from God. Some new truth or additional truth to what God has already revealed as truth. So new revelation or additional truth. And we know that's true. We know that's true. On your study guide, they will still use the Bible, but the Bible is made more complete 
by what they know, by what they have discovered or had devised from their own minds. Okay? It's the Bible plus whatever. It's the Bible plus Watchtower Publications. It's the Bible plus the Book of Mormon. It's the Bible plus the Koran. Or it's the Bible plus a Pastor so-and-so's books or Pastor so-and-so's tapes or Pastor so-and-so YouTube videos. It's always something added to God's revelation already given to man. That's the danger. That's the peril. So on your study guide... Perhaps you've heard about the hidden Gospels being found and are presented as something vital. Some new knowledge about God is your blank that has been previously kept from the church. That's always been the the um, the tagline or the sale. Yeah, they, they claim they've found some new knowledge outside of the Bible. And whenever anybody claims that they found something new outside of the Bible, that should be a major red flag. Don't you believe it? Don't believe it. These are a danger to the church. Just like the, the serpent in the garden, it, in, it introduces doubt into the minds of some people who are unaware of where God's truth is to be found. Or they're not convinced that they've got God's truth. So they're always looking for some other source. Always looking for some other source. You might have heard about the Suedo Gospels and Epistles. The Apocrypha. Uh, You always hear about extra, uh, they call it extra canonical writings. I probably butchered that word. In other words, something other than the Word of God. Something other than the Word of God. And they claim to have information about the hidden parts of Jesus' life that's so vital to Orthodox tradition. There's major denominations that have built their entire faith on tradition. Tradition. Left sandal first, And there's been all sorts of heresy introduced into the church in the name of historical Orthodox tradition. And these types fall into the same trap that the Pharisees fell into in Jesus' day. In Mark 7, 7, Jesus said, Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such uh, like things you do. And with some of these types, that's what it is. It's, it's always the personal preference that trumps God's truth because of their tradition. Well, you know, we always did this or the fathers taught that. So on your study guide. All of these so-called important works, is your blank, were written some 100 to 120 to 400 years after the death of the last apostle, the apostle John. So 120 to 400 years after the apostles had, had died and gone on to glory, we've got these manuscripts showing up with their name on it. And these manuscripts are written by false or pseudo-apostles 
And it's these manuscripts that have introduced many of the heresies that the church today still battles with. If you want to understand where all of this heresy came from, it came from these false gospels and these false epistles. You can go to a Christian bookstore, your major Christian bookstores, and you can purchase yourself a book called The Lost Gospels. Now that right there should tell you there's something wrong. You know? It's on your study guide. Some of these so-called lost gospels, is your blank, were discovered buried in a jar near an Egyptian town called Naj Hammadi in 1945. This is the, what the movie, you remember the movie, the, the, the Da Vinci Code? That's what it was all about. You know, these, these manuscripts, these lost gospels have, have con, uh, contained information or truth that would undermine the Catholic Church authority or prove the Christian faith false. That's what the Da Vinci Code was all about. And in spite of what modern scholarship wants to tell us that, that the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, they're the ones that determine which were the, the true books and which were not. That's not true, folks. That's not, that's not true. And the Emperor Constantine, he's not the one who decreed what book would be God's word and what book wouldn't be. That's not true either. So on your study guide. The 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament were deemed inspired of God because the church, the true body of Christ, was led and guided by the Holy Spirit that these 66 books were the divinely inspired books of God's truth. It was holy men of God. It was the church, not some lost emperor. Not some denomination, not some council. It's on your study guide. These so-called lost gospels and apocryphal books present a different Jesus than the Jesus of the four gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They present a different Jesus. I've read these things. And it's outright blasphemous. Outright blasphemous. Yeah, it is. It's adding to and taking away. These works distort God's character. They contain grievous errors on important issues like like uh, doctrines like on sin and holiness and redemption. And what they have in common is that they promote a works-based salvation versus a salvation based on God's grace. Every one of them has that same theme, a works-based salvation. So on your study guide, the, the dates of these works weren't written until the second century and beyond. A period of time when most, if not all, of the heresies is your blank. The heresies that plague the church today were introduced. That's where all the heresies come from. It comes during this, this period from 200 to 400 AD. I'll give you an example uh, of this um, corrupting influence. On your study guide, one of the manuscripts that were discovered in Egypt in 1945 
Of course, a place noted to be a hotbed of corrupt texts and doctrine was the gospel according to Thomas. Who in here has heard about the gospel according to Thomas? Almost everybody, I bet. Yeah, because it's advertised on television. I've seen this gospel advertised on television. And it's always presented that if you buy this book, then you're going to become enlightened by its contents because it reveals something that the Bible doesn't reveal about Jesus. In fact, there was a PBS series that highlighted the Gospel of Thomas on Frontline that said that the Gospel of Thomas does not tell the story of the life and death of Jesus, but offers the reader his secret teachings about the kingdom of God. That's Gnosticism, folks. Do you see the hook there? Yeah. It's that age-old question, Yea, hath God said, as though God's keeping something from us, and behold, all the way from the time that Jesus died, was buried and rose again, all the way to 1945, the church has been without this vital truth. My goodness. We haven't had the whole story until it was found in 1945. You know what my learned opinion on that is? <laughs> honestly. Honestly. That's the gospel according to Danny Thomas. <laughs> so on your study guide, by examining this manuscript, the scholars realized that three fragments of this gospel written in Coptic, okay, or Greek, Coptic, it's, it, it, I don't know what that is exactly. It was already written in Greek that had already been discovered in Egypt, is your word, in the 1890s, with the earliest fragment dating all the way back to A.D. 200, when all of the heresies started to surface. So already this thing is rooted in the era of heresy. And already we've got two strikes, both found in Egypt, both well written after Thomas. The same guy who put his finger was offered to put the, you know, put your finger in my nail prints, in my hands, in your hand on my side. So on your study guide. Discovery made by these scholars with the gospel according to Thomas. It's a collection of 114 sayings, mostly attributed to Jesus. However, this Jesus and Thomas' gospel is very different from the Jesus we know from the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And that, to me, is strike three. It's on your study guide. Unlike the four biblical gospels, there's no narrative or discussion of Christ's death and resurrection. Rather, the Jesus of the Gospel of Thomas provides secret truths only to those who are qualified to learn them. That's Gnosticism, folks. You know, this is this Yeah. Yeah, it is. That's exactly what it's all about. That's exactly what it's all about. See, that's the tenet of Gnosticism. Uh, The secret knowledge meant only for the elite or the initiated, and if you want to be a part of this, then you've got to come join our club. You've got to come join our club. 
and leaving out the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Thomas, you're my, you're, you're, what you're doing is, is you're leaving out the very cornerstone of the Christian faith. Right? I mean, Paul himself said, if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. So why leave out the most important thing about Christ's coming? You know? Why do that? Now, let's continue. On your study guide, a group of scholars, and this cracks me up, who refer to themselves the Jesus Seminar, all believe that the Gospel of Thomas is superior to the Biblical Gospels. This group of scholars was formed in the 1980s, and these scholars stated that their goal was to examine the biblical gospels, as well as all the early Christian literature, and what they were going to do is they were going to discover the actual words of Jesus Christ, as if we don't have them. So on your study guide, this group of scholars was noted for having a bias against traditional Christianity, They viewed Jesus to be a mortal man, not God, who did not perform the miracles listed in the Bible, nor resurrected as Savior of the world. And yet these men are going to be qualified to tell us what the words of Jesus were. You see, it's important what you think when you think of Jesus. Did you say mortal man? Mortal. Yeah, mortal man. And it's also good to, to consider the source. And that's the problem. A lot of people will take this stuff in and they will not consider the source. They don't look behind the curtain. This is what the Bible means about knowing God, being associated with God. You've got to know the truth. You gotta know the truth. So on your study guide. See, these guys already deny the scripture. They already deny the deity of Christ. So on your study guide, this same group of scholars, these members of the Jesus seminar, do not believe that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And yet we're told in 2 Peter 1.21, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And these men already fall into the category of what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 2.14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You see, these guys are working with their lost natural intellect. And they're going to tell us what is and what is not the words of Jesus. So what do these guys do? They, they have a color-coded Bible. And if they were absolutely certain that the words of Jesus were the words of Jesus, then that was written in red. If they weren't too sure, it was written in pink. If they weren't even surer, it was in gray. And if they were absolutely certain that it wasn't Jesus' words, then it was written in black. Less than 1%, I think it was .002%, they are convinced were the actual words of Jesus. Less than 1%. Now, boy, I want to get out and get that Bible. And the Gospel of John, totally in black. 
totally in black. Well, it goes to figure. Because the Gospel of John defends the deity of Jesus Christ. And they already deny that in the, in the get-go. So yeah, it would be totally black. Because they don't believe it in the first place. They don't believe it in the first place. And yet people flock to this type of individual as though they've got the truth. As though they've got the truth. But this Gospel of Thomas, guess what they did with the Gospel of Thomas? Mostly red and pink. Mostly red and pink. Why? Because it fits in their agenda. It proves what they set out to prove. See, they already started out with unbelief. And so they just proved their unbelief. 2 Timothy 3.5 says, Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. I mean, these men are already biased against God truth, and in their spiritual ignorance they were groping in darkness, and it's no wonder that they still remained in darkness. It's on your study guide. Like most of your modern Gnostic scholarship who look at God's Word as just another book, these scholars of the Jesus Seminar were saying that they, that they were qualified to see Jesus more clearly than the early Gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who actually walked with Christ. That's arrogance. That's intellectual arrogance. And that's what you run into with these types. Intellectual arrogance. And Jesus warned us of these kind. And Paul warned us of these kind. It's on your study guide, but here's the problem, folks. The Laodicean spirit is a gullible spirit. The Laodicean church age, the spirit of the Laodicean church age is a gullible spirit. By her not holding fast to the form of sound sound words, she believes herself to be enlightened and receives all and refuses none. If it's got the label of Christianity on it, then it must be okay. If scholarship said this, then it must be okay. The second blank, the Laodicean church lacks discernment. It's gullible and it lacks discernment because she has abandoned the truth for another truth that is more palpable and readable and more appealing to itching ears. In my research, I came across another group that will teach you that the Bible contains fake letters from the Apostle Paul. Now, on your study guide, uh, these fake letters are Ephesians, 
which teaches about the relationship is your blank of the church with Jesus Christ. So chuck out Ephesians, guys. It's, it's a fake. Colossians that warns the church of such as this group who call themselves Christians, especially Gnostic Christians. So pitch out Colossians that warns us about these folks. That's kind of handy. Second Thessalonians that warns of a falling away in the church prior to the rapture. Yeah, they don't want you to know about that. That's a fake epistle, so toss it out. First and second Timothy that speaks of the mystery of godliness. Right? Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. They certainly don't want you to believe that. So pitch that out. And the exhortation to hold fast the form of sound words in 2 Timothy 1.13. So exhortation is your blank. They certainly don't want you to hang on to your KJV. What was that? Exhortation. So it should be mystery of godliness and then exhortation. And then 2 Timothy 1.13 as well warns against the perilous times. The perilous times I believe that we are now in. That we are now in. Of course you want to get rid of those. Of course you do. They're all fake. They're all fake. Yes, ma'am. I'll go through the blanks again. All right, the first blank is relationship. The second blank is warns the church. The second Thessalonians is the falling away in the church. First and second Timothy speak of the mystery of godliness, followed by exhortation to hold fast the form of sound words, and then the warning of perilous times. Okay? Now the source that this group looks to is a man by the name of Marcion. And Marcion is the first prominent Gnostic that came upon the scene of the church after the apostles had passed away in the second century. And this man, Marcion, uh, taught that Jesus Christ was not God come in the flesh, but he was an entirely new alien little g God that was distinct from the vengeful God of the Old Testament who had created the world. How do you spell that, Marcy? M-A-R-C-I-O-N. He's really the first uh, prominent heretic to come on the church. And it's this man's teachings that the Jehovah Witnesses in their Bible, in John 1, uh, verse 1, they write that the word was a God, little g, God. Because they don't believe that Jesus Christ... They don't believe in the mystery of godliness that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. You know, honestly, guys, if you if you think about it, we're living in a period of time when people want their ears titillated. They don't want to hear the hard truth. They don't want to hear the truth that's going to force them to grow up. They want to remain children. And so they want things that will tickle their ears. Get their emotions all worked up. You know, give me a five-minute pep talk and I'll be good to go. 
That's not how you're going to grow. You grow on the meat of God's word, folks. And they don't want the meat. They want the milk. 1 John 2, 3 says, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So your blank there is the word keep. Keep. Keep is a key word for those who know God. Keep. So the word keep, this is on your blank, means to carefully attend to. Carefully attend to. To heed as an authority, to regard as truth. We've gotten so sloppy and so careless with the truth in the Laodicean age. So sloppy, so careless. And we're so willing to receive anything that calls itself a Bible. Now, I referred to these two individuals earlier, and it's not on your study guide, but these two guys are important in church history. Not for the positive impact, but rather for the negative. Uh, These two men are called Westcott and Hort. You may have heard of them. Uh, These two men openly declared their hatred of the KJV. They did not like the King James Version. And so what they did is these two men got their heads together and they went to, and, and, and behind closed doors, they didn't want any other scholars to know what they were doing or be a part of what they were doing. And they used these corrupt manuscripts, citing older must be better. That's where that comes from. And that what they did was is they overwrite everywhere where the received text was that didn't agree with these older texts. They crossed out what the received text and put in what these corrupt manuscript texts had put in. And these men used manuscripts that came off of of a dusty shelf in the Vatican in Rome. And that should be a red flag right there. And another manuscript that was saved from the trash pile to be burned in a monastery because even the monks realized that it was, that was no good, that it was corrupt. So they were going to destroy it, but it was snuck out by a man by the name of Tischendorf. And so these two corrupt manuscripts was their main source for their new Bible, the revised version. T-I-C-H-E-N-D-O-R-F. Now these two men, Westcott and Hort, just like the Jesus Seminar, they denied that Genesis chapter 1 through 3 was actually historical. They believe it was a myth. They don't believe, they didn't believe in the Garden of Eden, they didn't believe in an Adam and Eve, they thought that was a myth. So right there, the, the foundation, the, the chap, you know, the three foundational chapters of the whole Bible, they, they proclaimed it as a myth. They believed in Darwinian evolution. Uh, they believed that the blood atonement of Jesus Christ was immoral. A Hort believed in the worship of Mary and had a strong affinity to the Catholic Church. Thus, that's where the Vatican document comes in. The Vaticanus. 
And uh, they had other major, major issues concerning the faith, and yet these men are often lauded as great scholars by other scholars, proclaiming that they've done a great service to the church. No, they have not. The revision was, their revision was released in 1861 in England, and then 20 years later, the United Bible Society, um, per agreement with Westcott and Hort, came out with the American Standard Version. And you know the reason why they did that? Because they didn't want to eat into the the money that the revised version was bringing Westcott and Hort. So they agreed with Westcott and Hort that they would wait uh, 20 years before they would release their their copy of it in America. So what was their version? Revised Standard Version, RSV. And then we have the ASV. So on your study guide, with the introduction of these two revisions of the Bible, the RSV and the ASV, the KJV was no longer considered God's authoritative word. That's your blank. In fact, the attack upon the KJV came out in force. High-named church leaders falling in line with the revisionists and mitigating the KJV as an inferior interpretation. Inferior interpretation to their congregations. I've got commentaries at home written by good men. Have good stuff to say. But they, in their commentary, will say, well, the KJV has it wrong here and the KJV has it wrong there. And then they'll turn right around and they'll say, but the KJV does it better here and the KJV does it better there. They don't have a standard anymore. They don't have a standard anymore. On your study guide, and this is uh, something that I, uh, Pastor Randy pointed out. This marked the closing of the Philadelphian church age is your blank, and the opening of the Laodicean church age commenced. There's currently over a hundred English translations and more to come on the market today. Which one is the Word of God? Because they don't agree with each other. And they all claim to be. And they all claim to be. They all claim to be. So on your study guide, 1952, the RSV officially replaced the KJV in mainline evangelical denominational churches. 1952. Of course, the RSV is no longer there now. For a while, what, what was it? The NIV that was the one to go to, and yeah. So it's it's changed. It's changed. The, the NIV and all the other translations they started with what like, Westcott Court did, right? Where they corrupted everything, and then yeah, they were yeah, they they used the wrong they used the wrong manuscripts. Now this is what the revisionists wrote. Uh, and this is this is a direct quote from these guys. 
They begin, the Bible is more than a historical document to be preserved. It is more than a classic of English literature to be cherished and admired. It is a record of God's dealing with men, of God's revelation of himself and his will. It records the life and work of him in whom the word of God became flesh and dwelt among men. The Bible carries its full message not to those who regard it simply as a heritage of the past or praise its literary style, but to those who read it that they may discern and understand God's word to men. So far, so good. All right? But then they go on and say this, and listen very carefully. That word must not be disguised in phrases that are no longer clear or hidden under words that have changed or lost their meaning. It must stand forth in language that is direct and plain and meaningful to people today. You know what they're saying there? This book is too hard to read. It uses archaic language and weird phrases. So pick one that's easier to read. Don't worry about the word-for-word translation. Pick one that has, you know, the idea or the thought that just makes it plainer for you to understand. Basically, what they're telling you is, you stop studying this book and you let us do all your study for you. Because this book will make you study it. And gosh, where did I read in this book? It says, study to show thyself approved. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. And then they close with this. It is our hope and our earnest prayer that this revised standard version of the Bible may be used by God to speak to men in these momentous times and to help them to understand and believe and obey his word. How can they when it's not God's word in the first place? How can they when they're taking God's word away from them? That's the tactic, that, that's the tactic of the revisionist Gnostic. They tell their lie as the truth and slander the truth as though it's a lie. We see that in religion, we see that in education, we see that in politics. Or take away. Yep. Yeah, and they, they always, they always tell you that the Texas Recepticus is inferior. That the older and better manuscripts is, is better. But even the older manuscripts don't agree. They're not, they're not older. They're not older. So, in the reasoning of the revisionists in 1952, scholarship, not God's word, scholarship took the place of the authority in the Christian's life. Scholarship. I remember I had a Bible study with some young Bible college students. And the young man kept, he kept, his favorite quote was, well, modern scholarship has shown us. Well, modern scholarship has taught us. Modern scholarship. And I looked at him and I said, well, what does God's word say? No, as far as this young man was concerned, his authority was modern scholarship. And guys, don't be fooled because that is the mantra in many Many Bible-believing churches. It's so subtle. It's so subtle. Now this church, 
out in the middle of a cow field holds fast to this book and as long as our leadership holds fast to this book I'm going to stay a member of this church but if Pastor Brian gets up there and he decides to go with some other version don't be surprised to see me stand up and walk out ever changing yeah. and there is such strong pressure from well intentioned men to forsake this old archaic book and to hold on to one of the more modern versions to go to one of the more modern versions on your study guide in other words the Bible is not inspired but the cumulative don't look at the word cumulative product of well-meaning but sinful men C-U-M-U-L A-T-I-V it's an evolutionary process should be is it way down did I miss something Pam Nine, oh, page ten. Let me find my page ten. Oh, page ten. My apologies. Okay, here's some other blanks. Ah, and this makes sense. This will make everything. This will make everything make sense. So there is a movement in churches today that is indicative of the Gnostic influence that's prevalent in our society, politics, and religious institutions. There is now what's called progressive Christianity that is counterintuitive to biblical Christianity and is primarily due to the view of the Bible. Their view of the Bible. That's where I'm headed. That's exactly where I'm headed. Biblical Christianity holds that the Bible is the Word of God and authoritative for our lives. Now here's your blanks. Progressive Christianity Progressive Christianity generally abandons these terms about the Bible being authoritative in matters of faith and life and what is now being emphasized is personal belief over biblical commandments. A progressive Christianity generally abandons these terms about the Bible being authoritative in matters of life, faith and life, and what is now being emphasized is personal belief over biblical commandments. Now, who is the authority in that? I am. Not God. Me. First John 2, 4 says, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. So here's your study guide blanks. The Bible is now suspect. The Bible is now suspect in matters of science and history. It does not contain absolute truth. Since there is no such thing as that, 
The Apostle Paul is wrong in regards to issues of marriage being a product of his times of chauvinism. The Bible is wrong about gender, sex, homosexuality, rights of the people, and everything else on on that list. So it's suspect, absolute truth, product, and wrong. That's the progressive Christianity's thinking on the Bible today. Proverbs 29.18 says, Where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. This is in churches today. Not all churches, but in a lot of them. In a lot of churches today, it's our personal experience. It's our feelings, it's our opinions that are valued above the objective truth found in God's Word. I don't know how many times I've had discussions with people and I'll show them and even have them read what God's Word says and you know what they'll say to me? Well, that's your opinion. No, black and white. It's not my opinion. Well, that's just the way you believe. No, that's what it says. It's what it says. The Bible is no longer God's definitive word on matters of life and faith. It's all about what a person feels or what a person believes is true or thinks is true. In other words, we are now the authority, folks. We are now the authority. I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote a fellow. His name is, um, John Pavlovitz. He's a modern progressive pastor and this is what he wrote. He's, he's a big name in this, in this group. This is what he writes. Uh, this is the heart of what it should mean to be a Christian of any designation. The desire to continue to move and grow and learn and change, even in those things, even if those things place us in opposition to the person we once were or the beliefs we once held firmly or the testimony we once gave. He says, as we move through space and time, our faith should be in continual evolution. Just like all the different translations of the Bible. We should always look back at the previous version of ourselves and realize how much we didn't know then. We should be able to see how far we've come in matters of spirituality. He says, progressive Christianity is about not apologizing for what we become as we live this life and openly engage the faith we grew up with. So we're to engage that faith. You know what that means? Question the authority of God's word. There are no sacred cows, only the relentless sacred search for truth. So we're still looking for it. Tradition, dogma, and doctrine are all fair game. Because all pass through the hands of flawed humanity. You know what that is, guys? That's a veiled denial that God's Word was written by holy men inspired by the Holy Ghost. 
That's what it means. And as such are all equally vulnerable to the prejudices, fears, and biases of those it touched. So here comes your statement that I struggle with. In other words, the Bible is not inspired but the cumulative product of well-meaning but sinful men. Cumulative? Yeah, C-U-M-U-L-A-T-I-V-E product. In other words, guys, this book wasn't inspired. Uh, All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. No, according to this man, this book was written by sinful men. Well-meaning sinful men. So on your study guide, these Gnostic pastors teach their congregations, that's your blank, that the Bible is inspired in the same way and on the same level as many other Christian books, songs, and sermons. Congregations is your word. You know, I think there's going to come a day when churches like ours who hold to the word of God, who hold to the KJV, I think we're going to become a hated minority. Yeah, we are. We're going to become a despised minority. We're going to be called stupid. We're going to be called narrow-minded, bigoted, intolerant. That was just yesterday. Uh, I like what Brian said last night. He said, the the Laodicean church today have closed their eyes. And they've closed their eyes. and, 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 And it's a shame, too, because the book that can provide eye salve, they reject. They reject. And I thought Brian was right on the money. The Laodicean church has closed its eyes. We are truly blind. 1 Timothy 1.13 Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and which and love which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so I've got uh, 10 minutes. So your next blank is discipleship. So it's revelation and now it's discipleship or obedience. And I think I have a passage here, Luke chapter 9. I'll leave that for you guys to read because I'm kind of pressed for time. So here's your blanks. Our knowing God must begin with salvation. Must begin with salvation. Our knowing God must be in accordance to his word. And our knowing God is experienced by our obedience. Salvation, accordance, experienced. You know, in our day, we have really become occupied with experiences. We really have. And a lot of people's salvation either either succeed or fall on their experiences, on their feelings, on their emotions. Uh, some, people, uh, some people believe that they're, they're saved because they're experiencing joy. Well, what happens when something happens and that joy is gone? Or something disrupts that joy? So it's all about experience, and it's not so much believing what God's Word says or obeying God's words, what God's Word says. It's all about my experience. All about my experience. 
And so because of some experience, they believe that they're in fellowship with God, and that's not necessarily true. If some music or some song moves them emotionally, then they think that that's fellowshipping with God. And that's not necessarily true. I mean, I've spoken to men and women who base their salvation not on what God's Word says, but beyond some, but, but, uh, about, about some experience or some trial that they've had. We had one man that we were discipling, and I asked him if uh, how he knew he was saved. And he told me that one night he was driving home, and he was looking up into the full moon, and he saw the face of Jesus. And because he saw the face of Jesus in the moon, he thought he was saved. And then he went on to, to, to tell us that he couldn't see the importance of Christ's blood. He didn't think that, the, that, that Christ's blood was that important in redemption. He couldn't see the value of Christ spilling his blood. He couldn't understand why Christ had to die on the cross and spill his blood for redemption. And to this day, I think the man died with this thinking... He was saved because he saw Jesus' face in the moon. Experience. Experience. On your study guide, many base their relationship with God on the basis of a shallow emotionalism, some apparent vision or personal, here's another big word, epiphany. E-P-I-P-H-A-N-Y. Some epiphany, some, you know, some great thought, rather than obedience to God's clear commandments. On your study guide, John is very clear in this matter. It is not emotionalism, nor rationalism, but obedience. Obedience. John 2.5 says, but whoso keepeth his word... In him verily is the love of God perfected. Keep his word, obey his word. On your study guide, to keep is synonymous with obey. Synonymous. S-Y-N-O-N-Y-M-O-U-S. If anything, I'll probably increase your vocabulary. S-Y-N-O-N-Y-M-O-U-S. No, I won't do that. John 13:34 A new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you that ye also love one another by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another So on your study guide If you want to have some sort of experiential knowledge with God of love then love the difficult to love Love those who may or may not appreciate your love The Apostle Paul, on your study guide, often found himself in places where though he loved those he ministered, as you're blank to, and even served with, did not love him in return. Chapter and verse, Jeff, 2 Corinthians 12:15. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Has anybody ever found themselves in that situation? Where you're loving someone and they just reject that love? If you want to experience Jesus Christ, because what happened to him? Yeah. 
If you want some sort of experiential knowledge, this is your next blank of God, then live a righteous life. When it's not popular (laughs) to live a righteous life. And even when it results in being persecuted by family and friends and co-workers. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, I'm not a super saint. Never claimed to be a super saint. But I can recall certain times when I was not very popular among my co-workers and among my family because I was determined to live what God's Word says. I was determined to live a righteous life. When everybody else didn't want to do it, when everybody else wanted to go contrary to God's Word, I stood firm. And even though I got a lot of flack for it, I knew that was the right way to go. If you want, on your blank... If you want experiential knowledge with God, then you try standing on a biblical principle that's not popular. If you want an experiential knowledge of God, then hold fast, is your blank, to the sound words given to us in the KJV, even in the face of all those who call you narrow-minded or uneducated. Narrow-minded is your blank. There are people out there that's going to call you stupid for hanging on to the KJV. And not everyone holds to the KJV. Not everybody does. And if you desire to have an experiential knowledge of God, then you better learn how to die to self. Better learn how to die to self. Luke 9.23, And he said unto them, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. If you want to experience God, then you better learn to die to self. Daily. Daily die to self. Then finally, your last blank. Or not your last blank, but the last few blanks. Uh, Experiential knowledge of God is more than happy emotionalism. Happy emotionalism. The warm fuzziness due to some popular Christian song. More than knowing facts about God by the, by the reading of His Word. You know, there is an intellectual high that happens to some people. They get high off of the knowledge that they have of God's Word. Is but it depends. If you become egotistical and prideful, yes. But you can get excited about it. I get excited about things that, I, that God shows me without, without a fact. But there are some people, it's kind of like an addiction. They like that new knowledge, new knowledge, new knowledge. It's walking as he walked, suffering as he suffered, loving as he loved, giving as he gave. If you want to experience God, then you live like Jesus. You live like Jesus. First John 2, 6, which I believe is the key verse to this whole first epistle of John. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. So your last few blanks. Jesus loved more than ever, than any ever loved, yet they nailed him to a cross. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life, yet they made unfounded accusations against him. To condemn him to death. Have you guys ever been in a place where you've been falsely accused of something? Yes, sir. Doesn't that hurt? 
Jesus stood for the truth, being the truth, even when faced with, here's your blank, murderous opposition for doing so. If you want to experience God, you live as as Jesus lived. You live as Jesus lived. Don't talk to me about your warm fuzzies. Don't talk to me about how much you know. Let me see it. Let me see it. Amen? Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord.